Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. The last episode we'll record as we move into the second half of the year, when the pace starts to pick up and students start to think about their looming college application deadlines. Now, here in Portland, we experienced a really awesome summer thunderstorm last night, complete with thunder and lightning and a heavy downpour of rain for about half an hour. Seeing people out on the streets caught in the rain but dressed for the summer was a great reminder that things don't always go as we plan, but we can do our best to be thoughtful and prepared and to seek help from others whenever we need it. So I hope you all caught that metaphor. We have a very special show today, and I'm very excited about the guests who will be joining us for our final two segments. I don't want to spoil it because it seems like spoiling it isn't something that a good podcast podcast host would do. So I'll just say that you'll want to stick around through the end of the show, especially if you're the parent or guardian of a young girl. Now, before we get there, we want to kick off our show with a return to kindness, the third in our Kindness Matters series, which began with Zaragoza Guerra back on May 2nd and continued with Cara Courtois back on May 30th. Now, the question for today, does kindness pay? Literally. Uh, Joining me to talk about scholarship opportunities associated with kindness is a colleague that I am just as excited about having on the show, uh, college finance expert Lori Peltier. Welcome back to the show, Lori. Hi, Ian. I'm happy to be here. I don't want to oversell the last two segments as though this first one isn't beneficial because I think that there is some value to be had here, certainly. Now, we were talking about kindness and, and scholarships. Can you actually get scholarship dollars just for being kind? What is the college finance position on that? <laughs> well, as you know, Ian, there are a lot of scholarships available for a variety of attributes, such as tall students, left-handed students, Gold Award Girl Scouts, 4-H Club members, et cetera, et cetera. But not all scholarships are based on being a 4.0 student or a star quarterback. Students who give back to their community, students who are helpful and kind, may have an opportunity for some unique scholarships based on kindness. So in a quick search that I did online, I found four scholarship opportunities where kindness was the qualifying factor. And these scholarships come from a variety of sources, and the dollar amounts vary um, from small amounts all the way up to about $2,000. That's great. So there, there is an opportunity to, to see some return on that kindness. Of course, that's not why we do it. We're kind because it's the right thing to do. But I think that if, if that sort of is a defining feature of a student, it's a really great way to think about using that to help pay for college. Now, how might a student know if they are a good candidate for these types of scholarships? What is the, the measure for them to evaluate that? Yeah, that's a good question. In my role here at College Coach, I talk to a lot of parents who will tell me right off the bat when I get on the phone that their child is the sweetest, kindest, most loving, honest person on the planet. Well, of course they're going to say that. That's, <laughs> you know, it's their child. They're the parent. Right. Of course you're going to say that about your kid. But um, but how does the child present these qualities to the rest of the world? Do they mm-hmm. volunteer? And what do they do for volunteering? Have they received any awards at their high school for going the extra mile, for performing a random act? Act of kindness, maybe starting a fundraiser for a fellow student whose family is going through a hard time, or just some examples. And then also, how are they perceived by their teachers and classmates? Because that's what really counts, is, is how are they perceived. For example, you know, when a new student comes into the classroom, teachers will often pair that new student with an existing student who they think is going to be kind to them and show mm-hmm. them the ropes and show them the cafeteria and how to open their locker. They're not going to just pick any kid. So obviously the teacher who, you know, if the student is selected by that teacher, obviously they're putting off good vibes and, and they're a good ambassador for that school, so they're probably a very kind student. There's also this thing called uh, Rachel's Challenge. Have you ever heard of that, Ian, Rachel's Challenge? Yeah, that sounds really familiar to me. Yeah. 
It's an organization that was founded in honor of a girl who was killed at Columbine. Her brother mm-hmm. started this called Rachel's Challenge, and they go and make presentations at high schools. But before they go to the high school, they ask the teachers and administration to pick, depending on the size of the school, about 100 kids who they think should be in this program, kids who already show kindness and empathy and compassion, who might benefit from some additional training in that and how they can spread their their kindness throughout the school. So if a student is selected for that challenge, you know, to be in that small hand-picked group, then obviously they're showing the rest of their high school that they're kind and compassionate and, and would be, you know, someone who I would say, yes, that that's a scholarship that they would probably apply for. Yeah, I, you know, I think you're really drilling in on some very important factors, I think. when when you th- The things that you're describing about students, these are the kinds of things that we would want from our friends. We would want to see them in our classmates. They help to make a good community. And I think that sometimes kindness gets sort of the short end of the stick when we talk about college admission and college financial aid because it's very hard to measure. But it is something that is really, really important in the college admission process. I've had so many situations where I'm sitting down looking at an application, discussing it with colleagues, and we might say, you know, this is just a good kid. Like the letter of recommendation from teachers is saying that he's a mentor for other students in the class, that he's somebody that they can turn to when they need a a genuine act of kindness. And so I think sometimes we look at this and we say, well, kindness, it's hard to measure. It's much easier for me to focus my time and energy on test scores and grades and the numbers. But I think that there is really something to be developed here um, in terms of those principles of kindness. And if you've already started that, if that's already your natural disposition, great. Uh, You can keep magnifying it. Now, how do you actually show something like kindness? And especially when it comes to scholarships, what are the sponsors of scholarships sort of asking for in applications? There isn't a standardized test for kindness, I don't believe. Um, so <laughs> I what, don't think there is, yeah. No, and, and probably shouldn't be, right? So, so what do the sponsors of, of scholarships ask for when they're looking at uh, possible applicants for something like this? Well, as with most scholarship applications, um, there is the application itself, you know, name, address, you know, date birth, the high school, and things like that. And then usually a copy of a transcript if there's an academic requirement and an essay. It's usually the essay that's going to speak about the kindness aspect. I found an essay prompt for one of the scholarships that asks for a 750-word essay discussing a time that you performed a random act of kindness for someone or a time where you were receiving or you were on the receiving end of a random act of kindness and the effects of the event on everyone involved. The sponsor of this scholarship is a law firm, and they also require a 3.0 GPA. So not horrible, but, you know, a 3.0 GPA, and then an essay about, you know, some random act of kindness that you performed or received. Mm -hmm. Another one that I found um, requires that the student be a member of an organization called Kindness Matters 365. It's an ambassador program um, that is from the state of Florida. It was an organization started in Florida, so they also have to be a resident of Florida and an ambassador for that Kindness Matters 365 program. And then um, there are also micro-scholarships based on kindness as well. I want to come back to that concept of of micro-scholarships in a second, because I think that that's really interesting. But, you know, I think that when we think about these scholarship applications and essays, um, it's very hard if you sit down to write an essay on a random act of kindness if it isn't part of your everyday practice, right? So if you're not always thinking about ways that you can be kind, if it's not something that's a big part of your daily life, it might be hard for you to say, well, when was I randomly kind or when was someone randomly kind to me but if it's something that you really sort of make a part of who you are from your first day of high school on forward just sort of that practice of making it a habit makes things like this much more natural and I think presents much more authentically when it comes time to write that application essay and you know I'm speaking from a standpoint of a student that I worked with a couple of years ago who really stood out to me because of his kindness. And that's actually what he wrote his personal statement on, was learning to be kind from an older boy in his uh, debate team, and then paying that forward to other younger students as he grew older through high school. And it was just a really fantastic essay that really represented him, but it was a part of what he felt authentically about himself. 
And, and I think that that sort of habituation around kindness is a really important element of building towards scholarships, towards application essays, whatever it may be. Um, it's not just about that one random act that you can do and then write an essay on it. Um, so, Lori, you mentioned micro scholarships and our old our old pal, Kathy Ruby, came on the show once to talk about micro scholarships. But uh, I think that it's probably something that most people are still unfamiliar with. What what are they exactly? Well, and they are fairly new. I, I don't believe that these micro scholarships were around, you know, when I was working in an aid office. Um, they're, mm-hmm. they're fairly current. Um, and it's a way that a college awards a student a small, a.k.a. micro scholarship, could be, you know, $100 uh, for each activity that they present. Um, so they're about 500 to $100, but they can add up. And um, they can be for extracurricular activities, community service, membership in organizations like the National Honor Society. And the colleges will use websites to keep track of the students' activities. So students log into the website, and as they complete each of the activities, they report into the website, and then the colleges can see all of their activities. One of the popular ones, um, the one that I'm most familiar with, is called Raise Me, and mm-hmm. colleges subscribe to this Raise Me site, and students can enter their, their information there about what they've done. Um, their site uh, has a statement on it that colleges believe that students who perform service in their communities demonstrate commitment, self-motivation, and collaboration, all qualities that indicate that they are more likely to contribute to their campus, college, campus community during college. That's why colleges on Raise Me award students for their community service achievements during high school. Students can earn as much as $7,500 in micro-scholarships towards tuition for community service performed over the course of their high school years. So even though they're micro and small, they can add up for that student who's very active and involved um, and attends a school who participates with this Raise Me program. Right. And I think I think that there are dual incentives here, right? So there's an incentive for a student to meet um, this sort of criteria for earning these micro scholarships to do the things that colleges are willing to award money for. But there's also an incentive from colleges to signal to students what kinds of things they want to see from their potential applicants. They are looking for, um, as you said, commitment and collaboration. Those things are really, really important, really helpful for them as they're building a class. So it's a nice way to sort of see what is it exactly that these colleges I'm looking at are gonna care about and reinforcing that some of these attributes that are outside of the classroom that really are more about interpersonal relationships are important to this process. Do you have any sort of final tips or thoughts around securing a kindness scholarship? Um, Is there something that's different about this kind of scholarship versus other scholarships? Um, Or is it very similar to sort of what we look at when we look at any kind of scholarship for college? I think it's similar to any other scholarship. Um, You know, you want to start early and you want to search often. So I recommend sophomore year in high school is a good way to to start searching and then continue searching um, all through college. Don't just stop senior year. You can use the high school and the college websites and search engines such as scholarships.com or collegeboard.org. And then also your connections or your family's connections with their employers, your place of worship, your local grocery store, and of course any organization you belong to or volunteer with. I think what makes this one a little bit different is you want to keep track of your service. And a lot of kids today, every weekend they're out doing something, you know, picking up litter or donating food to the food pantry or running a road race to raise money for cancer, whatever they're doing, it's important to keep track of it because you're going to forget senior year when you're doing your activity resume or filling out an application of what did I do freshman year. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, how do you write an essay about a one-off random act of kindness, you know? So So I think keeping track of it might be a little bit harder than other scholarship searches. Yeah. One suggestion that I would make, and this is something that I'm recommending a lot of my rising seniors to do, is is a journaling practice. Um, you know, maybe write about one thing that happened each week and, and how you felt about it. And it could be something that happened within the classroom. It could be a random act of kindness that you witnessed or one that you were a part of. But I think that this not only keeps a record of how you are growing and developing over the course of your high school career, 
But it also allows you to begin to practice writing reflection and thinking about how things make you feel, which comes in handy for the college essay process, but is also just a really great thing to have, I think, as a part of your general life skills. <laughs> Lori, um, That's true. any any other thoughts uh, as we bring this segment to a close? Well, um, as we just talked about, you know, kindness can pay, but please be kind, even if you're not going to get paid on the other end of it. <laughs> That's right. I think that as with everything else in this conversation, our hope is, you know, students are thinking about ways to embrace kindness and allowing that mindset to drive their relationships with their friends and everyone around them. So thank you, Lori, for the kindness of coming on our show today uh, and sharing that expertise. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Great. Folks, when we come back, we'll be talking about some of the ways that you can support young women through their high school and early college years. You won't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio. Live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Now, a few months ago, one of our colleagues here at College Coach came across a book that she thought would be a fascinating group reading project for our education team. Together, we all read and discussed Enough As She Is, how to help girls move beyond impossible standards of success to live healthy, happy, and fulfilling lives. While our discussion was really interesting and thought-provoking, I don't know that it will quite touch the conversation we're about to have with the book's author. Rachel Simmons is the co-founder of the national nonprofit Girls Leadership and the director of the Phoebe Lewis Leadership Program at Smith College, the author of Enough As She Is, and she is also our guest on this show for the next two segments. Rachel, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. So I I would love to start by talking about your process for writing this book, because so much of what you say here is informed by an incredible amount of research. Um, Before you even get to that, when did you first start thinking about this idea and what were you noticing that inspired you to commit to writing the book? Well, um, I guess I could answer that question in one of two ways. Um, and maybe I'll just do both. So okay. what comes to mind what comes to mind is that I recognized myself in the voices of the undergraduate students that I worked with. So in other words, um, I 
sometimes refer to myself as a recovering overachiever who occasionally falls off the wagon. And by that, I mean that I, as a young person, really struggled with the pressure to define my self-worth um, and submitted to that pressure in terms of my accomplishments. I was a Rhodes Scholar, which um, is a prestigious scholarship to Oxford University that many of your listeners may be familiar with. I had a lot of... Um, you know, triumphs as a young adult, but they often felt empty to me because um, ultimately I realized I didn't, I didn't really want to go to Oxford to study political theory. I just wanted to be a Rhodes Scholar and win prizes. And so I had a big reckoning with myself in my mid-20s where I ultimately realized that I had to figure out what intrinsically mattered to me, which is something we can come back to in yes. order to be not just successful but happy. Um, so then fast forward, the second part of this answer is fast forward to my work on a college campus where I started to just see signs of my old self in the students. And so what I saw was, um, you know, countless young adults who looked wonderful on paper. They had great grade point averages and incredible sort of unfathomable resumes for people their ages, but they were um, riven by anxiety about failure. They mm -hmm. felt that nothing they could do was ever enough. And I don't want to suggest that it's only young women who feel this way because young men do too. What I do talk about in this book is some of the different ways that female psychology interacts with some of this pressure. Yeah. Um, but this is, this is a crisis all over the place. So the answer is, you know, it's personal for me and it was everywhere with my students. So I want to, um, I had some other questions, but I wanted to follow up on something. If you can sort of put yourself back in the position where you were that chronic overachiever. Um, when you were sort of in the process of applying for college and even going through the college process, what was your sense of the product of that experience? What were you building towards? Did, were you thinking about what you wanted to be um, or how you would define success when you graduated from college? Uh, were you just focused on sort of the next task and doing it well? H how did your sort of motivation work in that context? Well, now I'm thinking, I have to think back many, many years since college was so long ago. Um, I think I, I don't think that I had articulated for myself what I wanted to, to, to do. I just knew that I had to do things and I had to win yeah. the things, but I didn't know what I wanted to do while I was winning all these things. I mean, I, I just, I'm not sure that I spent a lot of time thinking about what I cared about. I'll give you an example. And I talk about this a lot with the students. I do a lot of assemblies, for example, like I visit a tour around the country and I, talk with high school students, young mm -hmm. men and women, about um, what it's like to put achievement above all and what, how that costs you as a learner. So I tell them about how when I was in college, I fell in love with this particular area, this discipline and um, this field. But I was not so good at it. So, like, I was so into the class, but I ended up getting a B minus. And after I got uh -huh. that first B minus, I thought, I can't, I can't do B minuses. Like, I have to get A's. So... I'm going to take one more class in this field, which I love, but if I can't, like, get an A, I can't keep with that, right? Because the more important thing is the A, not what I'm enjoying. And sure enough, I got maybe a B in the next class in that field, and I dropped it entirely. The field was psychology, which is <laughs> where I work now, right? Yeah, like, it's ironic. You know, and, and, and it was a huge, at a huge, it came at a huge cost to me, the fact that I had decided to privilege achievement over my genuine curiosity and connection to learning. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience. I think the class I most enjoyed my freshman year of college, um, I got a C plus in the class and, and I so enjoyed it and thought it was fascinating, really enjoyed the professor. But that little bit of feedback sort of told me, you know, this, this might not be for you. Um, and it, it's too bad they got pushed off of that pathway uh, because of that sort of uh, reinforcement. Um, now, I want to go to your research. So your introduction, you say you interviewed 96 girls between 15 and 24. They spoke to you on Snapchat and Instagram in your office, in the dorm rooms, food courts, by email, video chat, and text, which is a lot of conversations. Um, what was it about your research that most surprised you? Imagine there were trends that you expected to see, but were there things that were surprising that you noticed? Hmm. That's, a, that's a good question. Um, well, I would say a couple things surprised me. One is the, the, the widespread feeling of imposterism that so many young adults mm -hmm. feel. 
I didn't, mm-hmm. I thought imposter syndrome was something that people in high positions of power felt, right? Or like, like imposter syndrome is something that adults feel at work. But right. what I found, and then the research confirmed this, um, the research of others on imposter syndrome is that it is, it is firmly in place by adolescents. And so that was a big surprise, both because I hadn't, didn't expect it, but also because there are so few interventions for young adults that are focused on that. Um, so yeah. that was a big surprise, and that has become something that I spend a lot of time talking with teenagers about, and their parents and their teachers to say, hey, guess what? Like, if you want to support kids this age, you need to be tapped into the fact that a lot of them feel like they're frauds and that it's only a matter of time before everyone else figures that out, and you have to help them deal with that. I'd say the other big surprise for me was the um, prevalence of overthinking or rumination among young adults. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, right. So, if you're if you're dealing with a culture of of people who is who are both um, completely oriented to achievement, but also really anxious about failing, then yeah. this is a group of people that spends a lot of time dissecting what they did or didn't do, and therefore like ruminating about stuff. Um, so that those two things were pretty big surprises, and have in turn really affected the work I do now, um, both on with college students, but also even high school and middle school students. So both of those answers, they're terrific. And I think there are two different paths that we can follow. I want to pick up that topic of rumination because in your chapter five, you actually introduced the concept of co-rumination. So we might be familiar Mm. with this idea of ruminating on something on our own independently. But this is the first time I'd ever heard it labeled, but it's something I see a lot with students and parents. And I think that there's like an Amy Schumer skit about co-rumination as well from her sketch comedy show from a while back that I'm remembering. Um, But I'm I'm particularly focused on co-rumination with parents. I think sometimes we can feel like we're empathizing with our students when we are reflecting on something that didn't go so well or we're having those kinds of conversations. How do we avoid co-rumination? What are some things that parents can do to stop a conversation that's headed in that direction? Yeah, so let's make sure we're being really clear about what co-ruminating is because you're sort of pointing out there's a fine line between like, I just want to listen to my kid and be there for them when they're suffering and then co-ruminating. And it's kind of hard to know the difference sometimes. If you think about overthinking for one person as kind of repetitively focusing on a negative thought that's often self-critical without taking action. So it's sort of, you know, you kind of are saying to yourself, I can't believe I said that, or I can't believe I did that over and over again. What do they think of me? And this is so awful, and I can't believe this happened. And you find yourself just sort of doing it all the time, and you kind of can't stop. And you're not actually fixing the situation. You're just dwelling on it internally. So now you think about taking that and verbalizing that kind of thing. So now you're talking with your parent about, you know, I can't believe, you know, I I feel like I can't keep up at this college, and it's really hard for me, and I don't know if I can hack it. And your parent, what happens with the parent is they think I'm doing my kid a service by listening to them and being mm-hmm. a comforting ear. What they don't realize is that they are perpetuating the overthinking. And so what do you do about that? Well, in, the, in my book, I talk about a, a method where you listen to them, but then you try to gently steer them towards one small step they could take forward. Because right. how, do you, how do you actually, you know, squelch overthinking? You, you take action. You stop thinking and you, like, you do something. But when, you, when you're a parent and you hear your child start to say things like, there's nothing I can do and it's all out of my control, and they just want to say that over and over again to you and, and kind of have that same conversation, that's how you know you're co-reminating with your child. Gotcha. So there's, there's a, an importance in terms of a move towards action that pushes away this sense of wanting to dwell on something and reiterate it over and over and over again. Instead, let's, let's see what we can try here that's going to work. Um, That's right. Cool. I, I wanted to touch back on this idea of the imposter syndrome and especially its relationship to the college application process. I, I wonder about whether you've drawn sort of clear connections in your interviews between students feeling like imposters and the way that we talk about college admissions um, these days, or if it's potentially coming from other spaces as well. Um, no, I think that's a great question. And yes, I think I think there's a direct line between the enigma and the, the, the punishing enigma that is the college application process and mm-hmm. the sense that, that young people feel that I am an imposter. And what I mean by that is um, I perceive, and you may perceive this differently, but I perceive 
the act of applying to college to be this thing where you don't really, really get to know what's going to get you into what school. And because of, and you, and you constantly hear these stories about like, well, so-and-so was like a perfect robot and got rejected and -and so-and-so got in and there's no rhyme or reason to it. So when you have that, right, you take that, that kind of context and then you take a kid who sort of feels like I have to achieve, I have to get in, I have to be perfect. What you have is somebody who feels like nothing they can do is ever enough because they're never going to understand what the criteria are for admission. And the Mm -hmm. more uncertainty that exists, the more they start to feel like, well, maybe I don't have what it takes because I don't know what it takes. And so there's something about the context of applying for college that I think inherently installs a sense of imposterism in, in the young people who are trying the hardest to get in. And I'd be curious if you agree with that. Like, what do you think of that? I think, I think that's a really, I think that it's, it's right on. I think that the process is really opaque and um, there are answers to some questions. The answer to most questions we sort of joke is it depends. And so you have all of these different quote right answers for different schools, depending on the kinds of things that they're looking for. But I think most often what I see that sort of dovetails with your observation is misattribution. So a student will assume that they got into a college because of the essay they wrote and and will ignore the four years of excellence that they had in the classroom because they feel the essay is most connected to the process. Or they'll think that another kid didn't get into a school because they were too perfect when in fact it may have been that the final decision was so close and the admission office was fighting for that kid, but they just didn't have room for them in the class. So the problem is that the decision-making process is binary in terms of its outputs. You either get in or you don't get in. There is a lot more that goes into the decision-making process that families are unaware of. They don't know what kinds of conversations are happening behind closed doors And I don't think that colleges do a really good job of communicating that to students. So they see the inputs and they see the outputs. They don't see the process in the middle. Um, And that's where students are left to guess and attribute different things that might be right and might not be. And I agree with you that there are students who will latch on to one aspect of their talents and say, well, this must be the reason I got in. So, for example, student athletes will often say, the only reason I got in here is because I was recruited for my skill. But academically, I don't belong. Um, And as you pointed out, a student might say, I got in because of my essay. It doesn't matter that I worked hard for four years. So so those are additional reasons why students may feel like imposters. There's also a, a, a more insidious version of that, which is other students that might say, you only got in because you're a girl in this engineering program, or you only got in because you're a student of color and affirmative action created that that process. And so there there are these other pressures of how students are willing to welcome others um, to say, yeah, that kid earned it just as much as I did, um, that I think creates problems once students actually arrive on college campuses to feel welcomed and supported by their communities. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's right. So um, we have a... I'm really enjoying this. We have a lot to talk about. I want to take a break now because I feel like we are on the edge of talking about some elements of sort of what happens when students get to college and supporting that transition. Um, and I hope you'll, you'll stick around and we can talk a little bit more after the break. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Uh, folks, don't go anywhere. We're going to come back with Rachel Simmons. Um, we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. 
visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. I'm joined today by Rachel Simmons, the author of a handful of New York Times bestsellers on connecting with and supporting young women through adolescence and early adulthood. We're discussing Enough As She Is, which you can find at only one Multnomah County Library branch because it's been checked out everywhere else. I actually had to drive to North Portland to get my hands on the copy that I have today. Uh, But, you know, if you're listening today, you should just go ahead and buy it. I think that's probably a good idea. Um, So, Rachel, um, The thing that my colleague, Abigail, who introduced us all to this book, was most interested in talking about was this concept of the cult of effortless perfectionism. And Mm -hmm. it's not something that I had heard labeled. I think you came up with that term. Um, It's something that a friend of mine from grad school who did undergrad at Duke first introduced me to was this idea that you have to do everything right and you have to look like you're not trying um, while doing it. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like for students and the toll that it takes, uh, especially on girls when they arrive in a college setting? Absolutely. And, and no, I did not coin it. In fact, it was identified at Duke University in the early 2000s. Interesting. That um, okay. has since been, sorry? Interesting. That's that's actually um, when my friend was there. So um, Yeah, makes, yeah. So I'm, I, yeah. That's, I, that's why I was like, yeah, no, that's why she knows about it. Um, so effortless yeah. perfection, the way that shows up on a college campus is it, you have to remember, too, that, that social media plays a pretty powerful role in giving kids the impression that no one has any problems, that mm. no one is struggling, that no one, you know, like has, needs any help in any way. And so social media, I think, has become a powerful enforcer of the cult of effortless perfection because... You can make all kinds of judgments about people based on their Instagram, um, you know, presence, for example. But that being said, what does it look like on a college campus? Well, let's just take a, a for women. Um, you know, it looks like on co-ed campuses in particular, a sense that I have to go to class looking completely put together. Like, I can't right. just, like, roll up to, ca- to class in my sweats, but I have to, like, have done my hair, I've done my makeup, like, wear a really good outfit, um, and just sort of be looking my absolute best. And there is a sense that, you know, I don't need any help. It's not just that I'm not applying effort. It's that actually I don't need any help. And so what happens is people walk around projecting an image of I've got it all together, but they're often concealing anxiety, you know, not having all the answers, vulnerability, whatever it is. And they feel like if I say that this is happening for me, I'm like not going to belong here. Right. Like I'm not I'm not going to really be a part of this community. So effortless perfection is a hallmark of belonging in these in these situations. And so when you ask young young adults who are in these kinds of environments and there are many, many schools like this um, and that have begun to actually address this, ranging from Boston College to Stanford University to the University of Pennsylvania, you know, they just say, like, I feel like if I ask for help, people are going to think I'm stupid or people are going to think I'm weak or I don't want to burden people. Um, so when we talk about some of the mental health challenges on campus, it's important to understand that there are, you know, plenty of people asking for help. There are also plenty of people who aren't. Right. 
right? And at Stanford, they call it the duckling syndrome, this sort of concept of you see a duck coasting on top of the water, everything looks smooth and easy, but underneath that duck is paddling for dear life. And a lot of students, when they come into Stanford, need to keep up that sort of West Coast, laid back, everything's okay kind of vibe, but it's really, really tough. And it sounds to me like there are dual threats here. One is that you are not finding an outlet to talk about the potential challenges or anxiousness, whatever you're feeling that you're covering up with this effortless perfectionist. But there's also sort of a second challenge, which is by trying to maintain that effortless perfection, you're sort of exacerbating the problem. You're trying to fit a different kind of model. Does it, is it sort of compounding in that way? Uh, what's the difference between trying to keep up this image of effortless perfection and not talking about your problems versus just not talking about your problems? Um, because I think the effortless perfection ha- has an impact on whether or not people do talk, right? Because in mm-hmm. other words, if if you're just not talking about your problems and you're like looking unremarkable or performing in unremarkable ways, then okay. But if you're actually looking incredibly successful and and invulnerable, the people around you begin to think, well, maybe there's something wrong with me because I don't feel invulnerable or I don't feel that successful. So it ends up creating a sense of shame in a lot of people that, again, doesn't get articulated, right? So it's like a what's wrong with me. I think when I work with college students, they find refreshing about me that I can both be a successful person but also completely express the ways in which I'm vulnerable or challenged or working something out. And many of them crave, they are longing for other people just to be real about the fact that, you know, that life is hard and that that sometimes it's overwhelming and there really is an absence of of that real talk. I'll give you just related to this, Ian, you know, there's something called Stress Olympics that happens on campuses and and also in high schools too. And this is, you know, we laugh at the the team, whoever coined the term Stress Olympics, it's, it's pretty funny. It's like people are competing to talk about how stressed out they are. So, in other words, it's like, um, you know, if you and I are hanging out over a meal, it's like, oh, my God, I've got two papers due tomorrow. I haven't started either of them. And right. I have, like, practice tonight. And, and then instead of you responding, being like, oh, Rachel, that's so rough. Like, can I do anything? You're like, you think that's bad? Like. I have two papers and an exam tomorrow and like I have to volunteer and I've got to drive 40 miles and, and I've right. got a campus job. And so, so there's this kind of competitive suffering thing that's going on and people aren't like connecting and taking care of each other. Right. They're just like, they're just like, no, let me tell you how I'm suffering, but it's a stress Olympic. So, so that, if you take that and you pair it with effortless perfection, it's like, this, it's, it's, it's really hard to be real and it's, and it's very difficult to develop meaningful connections sometimes. Yeah, I used to, when I worked in admission at Reed College, which is a very stressful place, um, I used to talk about the fact that there was really no competition on campus except over who has more work to do. Um, and I thought that that was sort of like, oh, isn't it great that we're not talking about our grades and comparing our GPAs? But actually, as I was reading this, it was sort of like, oh, we can really see the damage that this creates. Because I think that a student can feel like, all right, I'm finally talking about how I feel. I'm finally sharing this. But instead of my friend helping me to talk about it, they're sort of going for that one-upsmanship, right? I have, a, I have a harder road than you do, which is just, it's natural. It's not something that's intended to be mean or competitive necessarily, but that sort of is the way that it happens. And so I think you had some great recommendations in the book. And I think a lot of your book is really on how can we as groups that surround um, young women in these contexts help to alleviate these pressures? What are some things that parents can do, that young women can do with their friends to help to alleviate some of the challenges that come from effortless perfection or stress Olympics? Well, let's start with parents. I think Please. one of the most important, one of the most important things a parent can do is model some kind of vulnerability to their own child. So, you know, I would ask parents, do you talk about your mistakes with your children? You know, do you come home and say, man, I really messed up today. Like, let me tell you what happened. And when you do talk about your mistakes, do you talk about them in a really self kind of damning way where you just say, man, I was such an idiot and I really screwed this up and, you know, everything is going to be awful now. Or, Or are you able to say, I made a big mistake today and I think I learned something from it really. And I think ultimately it's going to, what I learned is going to help me going forward, even though this was hard. 
So in other words, whether or not we talk about our mistakes with our kids and how we talk about them are going to be two very important factors in whether or not your own child feels comfortable doing the thing. And so that's a very important thing that a parent can do. Um, in terms of what, what girls can do, um, you know, there's so many things, even though I don't think it should be girls' responsibility to fix themselves. I not think at the all. culture has to change. Um, but I would say that, um, you know, I try to ask girls to remember to do at least one or two things they love every week. Because I think girls are um, maybe a little bit more sensitive than boys because of how girls are raised to please others at the expense of themselves. So I think a, a very important shield against some of the toxicity in the college achievement, you know, kind of uh, pressure is just knowing what do you really care about? Like, what do you really want to know the answer to? And it doesn't have to be an academic thing. It could be that you really want to be like a great knitter or you're really interested in, you know, online magazines. I, I don't know. But like, if you don't feel lit up in some way by something, that is going to make your life you know, often more stressful, less happy. And I, I think that we can, you know, as, as counselors, as adults, as, as people that work with young people or, or that parents young people, I think we can reinforce the idea that those things that you love, that make you happy, are important. They are things that really do matter. They are centering experiences. You know, if I hadn't had Ultimate Frisbee in college, I would have really, really struggled. I needed that as something that I could do twice a week that was going to take my mind off of all the other things that I had to do. And I think as parents, as community members, we can really reinforce that not everything you do has to be directly connected to rigid standards of success. They can be fun, exciting, interesting things that you want to spend your time doing by yourself or with your friends. So I, I well, love that. Well, that's right. Yeah, and I would add to that too that you know, many, many students believe that doing something that they love or, or any kind of self-care is extraneous to their success. So just as you pointed out, playing ultimate gave you, kind of nourished you and allowed you to be successful. A lot of students think, well, if this doesn't directly relate to my achievement, then it's not, it's not necessary. It's not core. And so what parents need to really emphasize and model, because you can't expect your child to do it if you're not doing it, is that self-care is part of how you get more successful. It's not something you do after you've decided you've worked hard enough. You know, I meet students who are like, yeah, no, I, like, haven't cleaned my room in so long because I don't feel like I've gotten enough work done. It's like, no, actually, you deserve to, like, live in a clean room, and that's a right, not a privilege. Like, you don't earn self-care. Um, right. So th- these are some of the, the kind of mindset changes that have happened. So one of the things I tell parents, too, is please don't compare your high school experience to your child because they're having a very different one than the one you had. A lot of parents are like, when I was in high school, and then their kid just goes bananas. <laughs> just like In every parenting talk I give, I'm like, just don't, don't do it. Don't go there because y- you did not nearly get the kind of messages that they are getting right now about how they need to act and what they need to value and that not enoughness that so many of them are plagued by. Right. Right. I, you know, even as a, a relatively young parent, I, you know, I graduated um, high school in this century, but even the messages that I was getting when I was in high school are nowhere near the kinds of messages that I see students bringing to me when we're talking about this, this college process. So it, it has changed really rapidly. Um, and social media, I think, has exacerbated it. And there's just a lot of bad information out there as well. And, and we sometimes gravitate towards that because it's, it plays to our fears. Um, I want to put in a plug for the introduction of your book um, because you have three sort of pernicious cultural messages around parenting that are really helpful for parents to see written out in italics and think about how they can um, sort of wrestle with those and understand them and and reject them. Um, So even if you just take a look at the introduction, I think that there's some really great messaging to be had here. Um, I wanted to switch gears just a little because you're the director of a leadership program at Smith, and that means that you have a lot of interactions with women on campus. Can you talk about the role of connecting with adults on campus and asking for help as a, as a method for having a more rich and healthy college experience? Yeah, I think that's um, really important. One of the things I noticed about young women is that they have um, – sometimes extreme relationships with asking for help on either side of the continuum. So some of them mm-hmm. ask for help all the time. Like, like with a professor, they'll say, or with a teacher, they'll say, can you, 
well, just tell me what I need to do to kind of get the A. So, the, yeah. you know, I need help with this. I need help with this because they're really just desperate to figure out what do I need to do in order to perform. Um, that kind of support seeking is actually tends to be really irritating to people. So, you know, if, if that's you or that's your child, that's something to really, you know, maybe spend some time talking about. Um, then there are people who never ask for help until they can't get out of bed because they're having like a panic attack basically and they need to take a leave of absence from the school. So, you know, one of the most undervalued and effective skills you can have on a college campus is, is asking for support. And I'm not yeah. just talking about emotional support. I'm talking about, hey, I didn't really get the notes. I like zoned out during class. Do you mind if I borrow your notes? Or, yes. you know, I could really use some help studying for this exam. Or I need an extension on this paper. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's wild to me that, that muscle to ask for help, and it is a muscle that needs to be flexed, has atrophied for a number of young women. And when they don't ask for help, they can't get better or they can't have people give them what they need. And so as parents, I think we have to say to kids, listen, if you don't tell people what you need, they can't help you. If you don't get help, you're not going to perform at your potential. So we have to rebrand asking for help, not as a thing that's like, you know, it means you're stupid and it means you're weak or whatever, but that this is actually going to help you get your needs met and it's going to help you be the most effective college student you can be. Exactly. It, it strengthens and reinforces who you are. And um, it, it's just, you know, the, it's the old, um, you know, metaphor about the chain, you know, the you don't want weak, you want to sort of be tougher together, you've got a stronger group. Um, or I guess it's the one Absolutely. with the pencils, you can break one and not not 50. Um, Rachel, um, I wish we had another hour because I'm really enjoying this conversation, but we have come to the end of our time for today's show. So I, I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today. This is a real treat for me. Um, and I want to thank you for your contributions to this research and uh, your work with young women all over the country. Well, thank you. And I want to invite your listeners to join me on Facebook and Instagram where I post a lot of content that will be relevant to them about parenting kids who are applying to college or who are in it. You can definitely find me on Facebook under my name. And it's been a real pleasure talking with you, Ian. Wonderful. The book is Enough As She Is. The author is Rachel Simmons. It's a fantastic read for parents of girls, but I wouldn't stop there. Even parents of boys should read this to be aware of some of the differences in psychology between boys and girls. And I think there's huge value for college-age men to read this as well to better understand some of the pressures being felt by the young women they call friends and peers. So that does it for today, folks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. We'll look forward to welcoming you back to the show next week for more advice and conversation. As always, you can ask questions by emailing us at gettingin-voiceamerica at gmail.com. And you can read up on admission and financial aid on our website at blog.getintocollege.com. We're on the downslope of 2019 now. Let's keep building momentum and finish the year strong. Have a wonderful summer. I'll be back with you in August. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.